Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 26th day of March, and the year is, yes, 2021. Now, yesterday, just yesterday, I introduced you to caviole. These are very exotic, subcellular, non-organeller, yet discrete features of plasma membrane in certain cell types scattered around the animal kingdom. And today I'm going to tell you a lot more detail about KVOI and how they're associated with disease and aging. So we're going to continue on this uh, really important topic for a little bit longer. Now, I'll remind you that KVOI are found on adipocytes, endothelial cells, and muscle cells. And they're localized there in very high density. And what they are essentially are plasma membrane indentations, and they enhance the surface area of that plasma membrane. The other important feature of them is because of the lipids that you find in this membranous structure, along with the proteins that non-covalently associate with the lipid fraction in this system, they are particularly resistant to fatty acid denaturation. Um, that's also known as lipid, lipotoxicity because free fatty acids in particular can act as membrane fluidity disruptors. They essentially can cause a disruption of the organization of the membrane, leading to um, a leakiness of that membrane, meaning that polarity can be corrupted, as well as movement of solutes across that membrane. Ultimately, that can cause an inflammatory response, which can lead then to either cell death or to a hyperinflammation reaction node. And if it's in a particularly sensitive area, such as in the cardiac muscle or in the liver or in uh, the central nervous system, this can cause very severe damage. Now, you don't normally find caviole in the liver, although there have been some reports of some locations, particularly um, for the lipoprotein transport uh, system. But the primary place where you find KVOLI are actually in skeletal muscle, endothelial cells, and of course in the adipose. Okay, so that's where we were kind of at yesterday. Now, paper published in Journal of Neuroscience a couple of years ago, and don't worry, I'll give you the citations, tells us that Alzheimer's disease may be associated with corruptions in KVOLI. Now, recall that Alzheimer's is a progressive loss of memory, cognitive decline in the elderly, the pathological hallmarks, pathophysiological hallmarks in the brain include amyloid deposits. Typically, we're talking about aggregates of beta amyloid, which, of course, is a cleavage product of the amyloid precursor protein or the APP. In association with that, you also get neurofibrillary tangles, which are essentially insoluble polymers and aggregates of hyperphosphorylated tau protein. 
Now, for a long time, people have tried to understand the mechanisms that can lead to late onset, which is the canonical version of Alzheimer's disease. Now, late onset AD is also known as LOAD or load in the journals. Now, load is the mechanism for generating a load phenotype is still relatively unknown. However, type 2 diabetes can double the risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, that's because of global dyslipidemia, but if you drill down, what association of that pathobiochemistry might be linked to caviole and to the type 2 diabetes relative to the arc that generates the uh, Alzheimer's disease. So there's a combined overall relative risk for dementia, including the clinical diagnosis you get from AD and the vascular corruption that is associated with type 2 diabetes, which of course is linked to obesity. Now, 80 patients tend to experience brain insulin resistance and, of course, an associated pancreatic overproduction of insulin, therefore uh, serum-level hyperinsulinemia. Now, recall that insulin regulates immune metabolism and microglia, and that potentially can induce CNS inflammation. Okay, so I want to kind of uh, make you aware of this in a little bit more detail. So a paper published in Archivum Immunologiae Therapiae Experimentalis, and that's the name of the journal. It is in Latin. Sorry for the corruption of my pronunciation there. The paper published back in 2013 is a good um, synopsis of this. So obesity and the dyslipidemia associated with it has certainly been increasing um, worldwide in the last 20 to 30 years. Now, one of the important sequelae of obesity is insulin resistance. Now, that means, remember, that you get insulin production. So it's not like type diabetes type 1. Insulin production does occur from the beta cells of the pancreas. But insulin's ability to interact with its receptor and all the downstream processing thereof is no longer functioning correctly. So we call that an insulin resistance, a resistance to the signaling, you see? And so the relationship of insulin resistance to high levels of lipid deposition throughout the periphery has been known for quite a while. What's the underlying mechanism of insulin resistance? Well, that's not as understood as we might want it to be. Some suggest that there is a very potent immune response because of high levels of oxidation of lipids. Now, this is definitely something that is occurring in obesogenic um, humans. So you get an inflammatory response, and the inflammatory response may be corrupting insulin signaling, and therefore the phenotype ends up being insulin resistance. Now, there is an expression of many pro-inflammatory cytokines, 
that are associated with obesity in the periphery and also even in the central nervous system. <clears throat> now, the canonical classical pro-inflammatory cytokines that are associated with obesity uh, are tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, interleukin-6. And all of those increase in adipose tissue that is associated with obese phenotype. And that the, the expression of all those pro-inflammatory cytokines are linked then to a systemic inflammatory response when you associate it then with insulin resistance, you get type 2 diabetes. Now, weight loss will reduce, and it's been well established that weight loss will reduce enhanced pro-inflammatory cytokine production in adipose tissue. So therefore, it also improves uh, the overall global systemic inflammatory response, means it knocks it down. There's also evidence that the pro-inflammatory cytokines and certain proteins that are associated with the structure called the inflammasome, which includes a whole host of transcription factors, including NF-kappa B, that's nuclear factor kappa B, is regulating transcription of genes, which is giving you the type 2 diabetes, the hyperinflammatory response, and that's that linking obesity, type 2 diabetes, to late onset Alzheimer's disease. And it seems to be that it's not only these pro-inflammatory cytokines that are functioning, uh, but that it is a direct association with TNF-alpha and insulin resistance that seems to be uh, in combination of this phenotype and that becomes this pathophysiology. So all of the suggested insulin resistance probably promotes cognitive impairment leading to Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> More than suggests that because you do have a pathobiochemical phenotype, the one I'm just describing to you, the pro-inflammatory system that we're describing. Hyperinflammatory is the nature of an obese system. Now, insulin-deprived central nervous system is susceptible to development of Alzheimer's disease. This has been seen in humans. In fact, there's increasing evidence that suggests that the endothelial and vascular factors are the major players here in this inflammatory response associated with T2D that's linked to that development of Alzheimer's disease. What's the mechanism? Well, this is what we're going to look at right now. Now recall, now I'm leading back into caveolin. So caveolin 1 or CAV1 is a small protein. It's a 22 kilodalton protein that coats the caveole and a subset of rafts that are linked to, that is lipid rafts, linked to the caveole structure. <clears throat> CAV1 directly interacts with many of the proteins in those lipid rafts, and it generates basically a scaffolding domain. Now, the processing of the amyloid precursor protein in non-amyloidogenic pathway by alpha secretase, as well as the amyloidogenic pathway, by either the base one 
or the PS1, that's presenilin 1, gamma secretase pathway. All of that occurs actually on lipid rafts. So it looks like CAV1 could be playing a role in the sorting of those rafts and therefore in downstream signaling at the cellular level because that's going to generate a trafficking of molecular structures, including ceramides, that can lead to transcytosis and endocytosis. And we know that that is associated with the A-beta protein degradation, leading ultimately to these amyloid polymers or aggregates that seem to be linked to Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So you've got CAV1 existing in vesicles, and these are known as caviosomes, but you also have CAV1, that protein, in the liposomal fraction. <clears throat> so CAV1 is enriched in endothelial cells. I told you that because we have cavioli abundant in endothelial cells because they have to traffic free fatty acids and so they have to be detergent resistant. So it's possible they're playing some significant role in the trafficking of fatty acids across the blood-brain barrier. CAV1 knockout mice has been shown to exhibit an accelerated aging phenotype. And what that what phenotype looks like is a loss of synaptic density, which again is a hallmark of the central nervous system phenotype linked to Alzheimer's disease. Now, we don't know whether or not CAV1 is directly linked into aging, that is the level of CAV1 being regulated during the aging process, the senescent process, but it's apparently is linked to the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> we know that insulin resistance is due to a dysfunction, as I've been saying for today and also many, many months and years in insulin signaling. And of course, that's all linked up to type 2 diabetes, right? So the insulin receptor and all that downstream signaling are actually localized in KVOLA. And therefore, they're transducing the insulin signal. And they're also involved in transcytosis of whatever molecules are going to be moving through the KVLI. Insulin actually induces the phosphorylation of CAV1 protein, which, as I've been telling you, is the principal protein in KVLI. It generates that structure, in fact, along with the lipid in forming a proteolipid complex, right? <clears throat> which is the skeletal mass of the KVLI. Now, Cave one, that protein I'm set telling you is not only necessary for the existence of the caveola, it's necessary to reach uh, the right molar mass to generate the formation or the biogenesis of the caveola. And therefore it's involved in the ability to transfer insulin from circulation, where insulin is going to be generated from the pancreas, right? Into the neural plexus, and it's going to move through the blood-brain barrier at those KVOLI. So CAV1 now is intimately linked to insulin signaling in the central nervous system. Many studies have shown that insulin entry into muscle 
interstitium also requires CAV1 and CAV1 phosphorylation, which is linked to <laughs> insulin signaling. And that's through the CERC kinase activity. Now we know that insulin resistance is associated with CERC kinase corruption. So that's an impairment then of insulin signaling. And that is essentially EOIPSO insulin resistance. However, we don't really know that KVOLI and therefore CAV1 are playing a direct role in the initial etiology of insulin resistance, particularly when you think about the type 2 diabetes model, which, is ten which tends to be a disease that progresses for many years, if not decades, in humans. So can that long-term degradation of the insulin signaling pathway be linked to something like KVOLI pathophysiology? That's a key question. Now, this paper I'm talking about here tells us that cave one levels are significantly reduced in the brain of type 2 diabetic patients. These are humans. And also in the animal model, the DBDB mouse. And there's with that concomitant is a significant increase in the A beta protein. All that looks like prodromal Alzheimer's disease pathology, you see. This paper also shows that in the DBDB mice, there's decreased levels of CAV1, and that's going to correlate with increased levels of full-length amyloid precursor protein. Also with base one, remember that's the um, enzyme that's going to break down the full-length APP. Also linked with it is hyperphosphorylated tau. And in that mouse model, the DB mouse model, a novel object recognition task becomes impaired. So that is actually a model for AD in this mouse system. <clears throat> Okay, so restoration of CAV1 levels in the brains of DB knockout mice rescues learning and memory and reduces levels of that full-length amyloid precursor protein, the base one and the P-tau, okay? So they further examined whether or not the APP metabolism and AB production, which is associated with it, could be if not associated, maybe even regulated by CAV1. So they were looking at this in hex cells, HEK cells. Um, and then the, these, are, these are kidney cells, right? And they were using these kidney cells expressing either human wild type uh, APP or the familial AD, which is known as the FAD linked APP. So there's two different models. And they looked at whether or not CAV1 downregulation or upregulation on an APP, AB production were assimilative in the phenotype of AD. And what they showed in this paper was that CAV1 significantly upregulated full-length amyloid precursor protein and the product of the proteolytic degradation of it, the A-beta protein. It also showed that this study also shows that upregulating CAV1 
did indeed reduce full-length APP and a and the A beta. So it looks like it's linked directly to it. So if you downregulate CAV1, you increase the AD phenotype because you're upregulating full-length APP and AB. Okay, but if you increase the amount of CAV1 expression, you reduce that. So what they finally showed in the mouse file was when they deleted the CAV1, it completely altered the distribution of the amyloid precursor protein in the plasma membrane, and that leads to an alteration of its processing, which basically means a decrease in the Alzheimer's disease phenotype. So this is really interesting work. It's really very brand new, coming out in late 2019. So the, the evidence they show here is a depletion of CAV1 in the brain of a type 2 diabetic mouse induces an amyloidogenic processing of APP, which resulted in increased levels of full-length amyloid precursor protein and A-beta protein and tau hyperphosphorylation. All of that is followed by cognitive deficit and Alzheimer's disease. So the study suggests a very potent possibility that this is a mechanism for underlying the development, the early development, the prodromal development of late onset Alzheimer's disease. And therefore, it, the implication is that a restoration of CAV1 levels could potentially slow this process of Alzheimer's disease in humans. Right? So it's pretty breakthrough stuff here. Now, remember, there's all different kinds of these CAV proteins. And I only mentioned them briefly last time, but there's CAV1, which is ubiquitous in all KVOLI. There's CAV3, which you find in KVOLI of the cardiac and skeletal muscle system. Then there's CAVIN1, which is ubiquitous. CAVIN2 and CAVIN3 are both also ubiquitous. But CAVIN4, again, is not ubiquitous in all KVOLI. Again, it's only in the muscle, cardiac and skeletal. <clears throat> Remember the EHD um, protein, EHD2, that we talked about. Now, this is, again, the EPS15 homology domain, right? Specific domain of protein that you find in uh, polypeptides associated with membrane generating alpha helical structures that end up being signaling moieties and causing membrane raft assembly. That's what that EHD protein is all about. It's also ubiquitous in all the KVOLA, as is the Paxin2. It's ubiquitous. Um, it's going to gonna also have an SH3 domain, which we've talked about many times in uh, authentic biochemistry. <clears throat> and the ROR1 protein, which, remember, is restricted in only certain KVOLA, okay? And that's going to be the orphan receptor, right? We talked about many, many, many times. That's the receptor tyrosine kinase-like orphan receptor, right? All right. I just wanted to give you an idea of all the different proteins that are involved there. Now, mammals possess three KVOLIN genes, CAVs 1, 2, and 3. And KVOLINs are small, ligomeric, cholesterol-binding proteins where the N and carb, uh, the uh, amino terminus and carboxy terminus of the KVOLINs face the cytoplasm. And it's pretty sure that the proteins adopt a hairpin conformation 
within the membrane. There are four distinct domains that have been operationally defined uh, in these uh, caveolins. The N-terminus, the first 80 residues or so, uh, you have a conserved scaffolding domain between residues 82 and 102, uh, particularly described in CAV1. And you also have this intramembranous domain, which is pretty short, uh, residues about 103 to 133. And then you have a somewhat more extended carboxy terminus, which ends up being the last uh, 40 or so amino acids leading up to 178 in CAV1. <clears throat> the the carboxy terminus of CAV1 is palmitylated. I mentioned that last time. And the N terminus of CAV1 is usually phosphorylated. And you have a conserved tyrosine residue in that uh, uh, amino terminus. Cavins form oligomeric complexes and they're recruited to KVOA to stabilize during the early formation of the KVOA. Cavin 1 binds also to both a phosphatidylinositol bisphosphate, which is a PI45 bisphosphate, and also to phosphatidylserine in the membrane. So two different phosphoglycerolipids uh, are non-covalently associated with those two, uh, with Cavin 1. <clears throat> you also get binding and stabilization of that CAV1 enriched domain in all the KVOLI you see. So those are some of the lipids involved in producing KVOLIN. Okay. Now those are just the glycerol lipids. More on the KVOLI lipids. Purified KVOLIN, you can do this in the lab. You can enrich for cholesterol, and that's one of the ways to pull out the KVOLI. You're going to have a high level of cholesterol in KVOLI. And you're going to have a host of glycosphingolipids, including ganglioside 3, GM3. And that's going to be enriched relative to any other plasma membrane-associated um, membrane lipids. Peptides derived from caveolin can reorganize around the lipids. Again, it's a non-covalent association. <clears throat> and they're incorporated into liposomes. And particularly, there's a specificity for cholesterol, phosphatidylinositol 4,5-bisphosphate, and uh, phosphatidylserine, as I just mentioned to you. There's oligomers of caveolin that seem to be necessary to generate that. Essentially, it's a proteolipid association. Okay? So <clears throat> caven proteins also show lipid binding activity, and they possess this Phosphatidylinositol 45 bisphosphate binding site, and, an H, and that's within that HR1 domain of the protein. And that's also where we find the phosphatidylserine binding site. Protein binding to those lipids, of course, generates this unique biochemical domain in the membrane, which becomes KVOLA. Specific lipids don't uh, necessarily seem to be required, that is, fatty acid. Um, Molecular species can be swapped out. You still make KVOLI. So you don't need, for example, just icosapentaenoic or just docosahexaenoic acids. At first, that looked like that might be a possibility. It doesn't look like after further study that's necessarily the case. Genetic ablation of the lipid flipase enzyme known as MFSD2A, which is responsible for transporting long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acid-containing phospholipids, 
uh, from the outer to the inner cytoplasmic leaflet of the endothelial cell membrane will cause the appearance of cavioli and will increase vascular permeability. So that finding suggested that wild-type blood-brain barrier specific polyunsaturated molecular species, not necessarily of the exact uh, number of double bonds, but perhaps of chain length, <clears throat> those kind of phospholipids, either sphingolipids or glycerolipids, um, in the cytoplasmic leaflet of the plasma membrane are going to create an inhibitory environment for cavioli formation. So this is a negative result, right? So if you've got that particular type of fatty acid in those phospholipid classes on the cytoplasmic leaflet, it can inhibit cavioli formation. So you can see here how the, the all of the nitty-gritty detail is necessary to understand how these cavioli are formed and therefore how they function in insulin resistance, in an inflammatory response, and ultimately in the potential for prodromal late-onset Alzheimer's disease, okay? So you've got <clears throat> lipoprotein and you've got proteolipid fractions. So most of this is not covalent association, but some of that proteolipid is covalent association of the caven proteins directly with these phospholipids. So I want to make sure that that's clear. There is some covalent association of the protein with lipid. And then there's a much greater deal of non-covalent lipoprotein type association, which is a hydrophobic interaction. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying goodbye for now from Authentic Biochemistry, and I'll be talking to you soon about more KVOLI. Bye-bye.